Thank you guys for that warm welcome. Well, I do enjoy playing in the world of ideas and wrestling with uh, questions with people, and I'm not going to pretend to be able to answer all the questions that you have, but uh, there are ways and times in which we can put our heads together and come to conclusions and consensuses on things that help us move further down the road in our, uh, not just intellectual growth and discovery, but in uh, our formation as people that are growing in the likeness of Christ. And so there's a, a two-fold sense in which we're doing this. It's not just um, merely for the theoretical fun of it, but that the realization that our questions really do meaningfully impact the way that we live our lives is an important part of that. So that's what we're here to spend a little bit of time doing together. I, it was a long journey here. I was clean-shaven when I left and um, finally made it. But uh, people ask me, I, for a job, I have the, the privilege of uh, reading a lot of fun books and then traveling around speaking at colleges and universities and... Uh, people say, well, what are the questions that people are asking? And I say, well, right now, they're kind of in the S category. So sex, science, suffering, suicide, significance. You can kind of go on through the S's that way. But the one that I want to address with you briefly this evening is the relationship between faith and science. And I'm just going to speak for about 20 minutes, kind of pontificate a little bit out loud, and then you can put your heads together and come up with questions and uh, push back or um, push deeper into some of these ideas. I grew up in a small town that was home to the world's largest fully steerable telescope. The dish on this thing is 2.3 acres. Um, and so as a scientific community, most of my friends and my childhood friends, their parents had multiple PhDs in astrophysics and all kinds of fun stuff, cosmology. And I grew up in that community, but also in a very strong church community. And so both of these things uh, just were in my life. I never really saw them as tension until later uh, I started going to college and running into people who didn't necessarily grow up with that and somehow held faith in science as they had a conflict model of the way that these things related together. And so uh, not coming from that background, I kind of had to learn that conflict model. And so what I want to do is uh, kind of stand in the middle there and discuss sort of some things that are helpful in my mind as I frame this um, conversation. My, I guess, academic first love, you could say, was physics. For my undergraduate, I ended up double majoring in physics and philosophy and minoring in math. But the, um, the physics side of it gave me a certain way of enjoying the beauty of the world, the mathematical precision that's there, the complexities and the wonder of life. But I found it to be just in, in one category. And so I'll talk about that a little bit later. But here are four things that are helpful for us as we begin to have conversations about the relationship between faith and science. And this is the first one. We have to remember that when it comes to proofs, things that are actually provable, only mathematical concepts are actually provable. And of the things that are mathematically provable, none of those are the existentially meaningful categories of life. If I work a differential equation perfectly, my wife doesn't get all googly-eyed when she looks at me. Um, so what it means to prove something is actually a, a, very, a fairly narrow definition of geometric proofs and having certainty is a rare thing in any concept and in any category. The second one is, is that we have to be very careful to consider our sources. There are people that are great philosophers and lousy scientists. And there are people that are great scientists and really lousy theologians. And there are people that are good philosophers and bad theologians. So just because somebody has uh, made a name for themselves in one category doesn't necessarily mean that they are the source of authority in a different category. And as Christians, we need to be careful of that too, of saying just because we're really good at this way of thinking doesn't necessarily make us the expert of all reality in all categories. And so some of it is we have to consider our sources when we're having these conversations respectfully. The third one is, and this is a derivative of the, the second one, is that we have to recognize there are limits to what we can know in any given category. 
There's a popular radio program in the States called Science Friday, and there's a man named Ira Flato who hosts this show, and he said he often gets people that call in and write to his show that are disappointed because they say, you had two scientists on your program and they disagreed about something. That can't be if it's real science. And he's saying, no, you don't understand how science works. We have data, we have uh, great scientific minds, we come together, we discuss, we don't have certainty on this, we're pushing into it. There are limits to what we know, that's how science works, it's always looking to the unknown. And so there are categories where we have to accept the limitations of what we can know in them. We can't know the full depth of everything. We aren't all masters of knowledgeology, and what we've come to know as humans uh, hasn't reached its, its fullness. And then the fourth one is, and this is a bit of a funny one, is that when it comes to proving things and having discussions about what's real and true, it's important in our minds that we recognize, first of all, what counts as evidence, but secondly, that we aren't purely rational creatures. I've had wonderful conversations about the evil of processed sugar while eating glazed donuts. And you laugh because you've done the same thing, where intellectually I know this isn't good for me, but I do it anyway. And we could think of all kinds of examples in life and culture where people do that. So to recognize that it's fun to think of ourselves as purely rational, but there are other categories of life that are important, that part of that. So if we hold those um, sort of as the boundaries of our playing field here, that helps us... Um, in a more productive way get moving in the right direction. When I was uh, in high school, the, the senior class of so the final year of high school ate their food in a separate courtyard from the rest of the student body, and we had to take our food tray back to the cafeteria, and it was a little bit of a walk, you had to stand in line. So I made a bet with my friend Lisa. I said, hey Lisa, I'm gonna flip a coin, and every day that it's heads, you take both of our trays back, and every day that it's tails, I'll take your tray back. And she said, great, 50-50. What would you say if I told you that I flipped heads 20 days in a row. It's a point zero 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 nine five percent chance of that happening. What's the most likely explanation of what was actually going on there? Two-headed coin. That's exactly right. Now, this story doesn't say much about the content of my character or their creativity and cleverness, but somebody should have raised a little bit of a concern at some point. Um, yeah, I had a two-headed coin. That's actually the most probable description. It is awesome. You can buy them on the internet. The face is milled out of one and cut off the other and inlaid in it. Perfect. I won all kinds of kickoffs and all sorts of great stuff with that coin. Um, and didn't have to take my tray up. It was great. So, but when we think about a situation like that, in any type of description of what happened in a story, there's a clear distinction between the agent and the mechanism that produces the final result. The agent is the one who's doing the doing. It's the mind behind. It's the action, it's the plan, it's the causative purpose, and the mechanism is the process by which the agent brings that action to fulfillment. So in some ways you could say uh, the two-headed coin was the reason that Lisa stood in line longer than I did, but really it was me. I was the mind behind it, and I was using that mechanism for my own purpose because I had a big plan and a big picture and wanted to use it. And we can go through this in all kinds of different descriptions of life of saying basically when we give a response to something of what's going on, if we have a why question, we need a who and a how to get to the why. When you replace a who with a how, the why gets weird. If you have just how and how, there isn't a why to it. You want a who and a how in order to get an appropriate why response to anything that's happening. And often what we end up doing when we're discussing things scientifically is that we get our agents and our mechanisms confused. And so broadly speaking, what I would say is that God is the who, the one who's doing the doing, but our scientific pursuits and studies reveal to us the mechanisms by which God most often operates in the world. And so there are mechanisms that we can study scientifically that are repeatable and are wonderful things, but that isn't the fullness of a description of why the world works that, the way that it does. What we 
tend to slip into, academically speaking, is something called a Procrustean bed. I don't know if you remember your Greek mythology and remember the myth of Procrustes, but Procrustes was an innkeeper who had a bed, and let's say it was six feet long. And every guest who came to his inn, he forced them to fit to his bed perfectly. So if you came along and you were five foot six, he stretched you on a rack till you were six feet tall. And if you were six foot six, he chopped off six inches so you fit into, and of course everybody died who stayed at this inn. Um, but he, he had a, pre, a predetermined set of conditions and everything had to fit perfectly in that. Now, like all good Greek mythology, somebody shows up, catches Procrustes, forces him to fit in his own bed and kills him. Um, just in case you were disappointed that nobody was going to die in that Greek mythology story surrounded out there. But that idea has become known in philosophy as a Procrustean bed when we have a predetermined set of standards and everything must fit right here. And so the difference between having a scientific outlook and, and perspective on life and a scientism, so to speak, is that scientism says all of reality must fit between these boundaries. It all has to fit right here. And so as a Christian, I can delight in what we can understand scientifically, but I never am going to even come close to making the statement that all of reality must fit within these provable parameters of things that are empirically viable to us. Naturalism does not bother me necessarily because of the answers that it gives to questions. It bothers me because of the types of questions it doesn't allow me to ask. There are questions that are meaningful as humans that aren't mathematical or scientific. I was uh, speaking on this topic at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology one time and about the purpose of life. And a student raised his hand and said, why would you even ask why questions? Now, it's kind of a funny question, why would you ask why? People laughed. Um, but I said, actually, hold on a second. It's not that funny because given your framework, it's, you live in a very it is what it is world. There is no why. There is no purpose to it. And so what I want to think about in the fullness of what it means to be human is to challenge the category that everything must fit within these boundaries. Yes, everything that does actually fit there is great, but there's so much more. As my boss, Ravi Zachariah, says, science does not have the prerogative to answer and handle the most deep and um, embedded existential questions that we have as humans. We have questions and desires that transcend what we can study scientifically. And in a sense, we can think about our scientific pursuit as um, the hows, what it is that we transcend. What are we more clever than? We have big brains and opposable thumbs, and we can study the molecular structure of the chair that you're sitting on. It's something that we're above. We transcend it, and we look at the hows and the processes. But then philosophically and religiously, we look at the things that transcend us, the whys and the purposes. And so we get our whys and our purposes from above us, but study the hows and the processes below us, and in doing so, come together with a much more comprehensive view of reality. As Professor John Lennox likes to tell a story, and others have used it, um, is that, let's say you walk into my house, and there um, is water boiling on the stove, and you say, Nathan, why is the water boiling? And I could say, well, the electrical current is running through resistors, it's creating heat, the heat is transferred up through the bottom of the pot, there's a pressure, pressure differential that causes the bubbles, you know, and that's why the water is boiling. And that would be a fine description of why the water is boiling. Or you could walk into my house and say, Nathan, why is the water boiling? And I could say, well, I wanted to make you a cup of tea. Which of those is right? Both are. So one is a, a, a mechanistic description of the pressure differentials inside the tea kettle, and one gives a broader purpose to what actually is going on here. And so both of those can be held together in a way that says, when we think beyond scientism, it's not a restriction of the way that we're viewing the world. It's an invitation to believe not less, but to know more and to enjoy it because we know the purposes for which it was created. 
And once we start thinking about how this all fits together in reality, it gets a little tricky, but we have to think that one of the unique features that Christianity has brought to the scientific world as the Canadian, uh, actually Canadian uh, Catholic theologian and philosopher Charles, Charles Taylor said, that Christianity took the fairies out of the trees. In the sense that if you think about the way that a lot of the world operates, very animistic, that everything is animated by a spiritual force, Christianity says, no, God transcends that. And so this idea of transcendence becomes important because God isn't in the table and in the tree and in the clover. Um, so we can expect there to be repeatable, studyable things that happen in nature in that type of way. And so God transcends it and isn't in it, and that also leaves the possibility open for miracles. It's not difficult at all to believe that if there is a God that transcends all of this stuff, that he can't interact and intervene in that which he has created in abnormal ways according to what we expect to be normal, um, because he can do it. And so if there is a God, then miracles are not really a big problem for us. If there is this idea that there is a transcendent God who is a powerful agent and mind behind the way that our world operates, then there would be certain things that we would expect to see in the world. And one of those would be that our natural world would work in consistent and repeatable ways. That we would have a foundation for ethics and how we report the research that we do scientifically and how we gain our funding and what's ethical and what we choose to do with what we can do. We would expect for there to be fine-tuned pointers to this universe that make it look like it was created for our lives. And we would expect that we would have creative minds that delight in discovering and looking into things. We would find that we have minds that are always looking beyond ourselves, that we are creatures that are created to worship. And whether or not that's found in God or ourselves or some football team or politician uh, is a bigger story, but we would expect to see these things that are happening in our world and that we do observe. Now, you can say, okay, this whole thing about you know, faith and science going together and being mutually beneficial and compatible, that's cute, but is it really necessary? Is it not true that if we look at our Procrustean bed, everything actually can fit within these boundaries? Is that not the most simple explanation? And so there's a, an old uh, idea called Occam's razor. And Occam was a philosopher, and he basically said, don't needlessly multiply entities. Don't make an explanation more complicated than it needs to be. If there's a simpler version of it, go with that. And so people will often push back to me and say, Nathan, but there's a simpler explanation of reality than Christianity has to offer. And that's where the conversation is tense, because I don't think there is. I think Christianity is the most simple description of the totality of reality. When you consider all of the human data points that we need to fit into a theory, if you only have one data point, datum point, it's very easy to have a theory that covers it. But once you have multiple, you need a much bigger theory. And so we need something that can help us positively structure the way that we analyze the physical reality around us. But we also have longings as humans in categories of justice and beauty and spirituality and relationship that go beyond anything that we can design an experiment to cover. And so that's what I'm saying. When we factor in these data points that are a necessary part of what it means to be human, then we do need a bigger theory than just scientific naturalism to comprehensively cover what it means to be human and what we can know about our world. One person put it this way. They said, suppose you, know, you leave here tonight and you go out and there's a, a light in the parking lot and you see uh, one of your friends looking around on the ground and you say, hey, can I help you? What? And they say, yeah, I dropped my car keys. And so you help them look for a little bit and you say, um, I don't see them. Are you sure this is where you dropped them? And they said, oh, no, I, I dropped them back over there. And, and you say, well, why are you looking right here? And they say, well, this is because this is where the light is. Um, and so are we crippling ourselves by our dependency on saying, this is where a scientific light is shed on reality, and we must find all of our answers under this light? 
And so I'm not preaching, I'm just taunting you to think about the possibility of there being answers that are outside of those boundaries. John Polkinghorne is a uh, Cambridge physicist and also an Anglican priest, and he points out helpfully, and this is something that I found to be true in my life, is that science always points beyond itself. Science never reaches a definitive conclusion. It's what helps it keep going. We always get, once we figure something out, we always ask why, the next step. We always want to know. We always want to keep going and pushing into something. And there's an unknown to it. Um, and, the, and that delight and wonder at filling in the gaps of our knowledge turns into a critique of Christian faith because people say, oh, Nathan, it's easy. This is what happens is anytime that a Christian doesn't know the answer to something, scientifically, they just say God did it. And so we're using God to fill in the gap. I would submit to you that I don't believe in a God of the gaps. I believe in a God of the given. It's not because of what I don't know that I posit there's a God. It's because of what I do know that I posit that it makes the most sense to believe that there is a God. And so science points beyond itself to say we can understand these things, but it still leaves us hanging with the categories of questions that true science doesn't claim to answer for itself. When I was an undergraduate student, that was part of the fun of being in a quantum physics class where they say, hey, this is how we're modeling light right now. But in 10 years, one of you guys can completely rewrite the math for it. We don't know. We weren't, we're not saying this is absolutely true. This is the way that we can model reality. And it's awesome. It's a lot of fun. And then I would run across campus over to the philosophy and religion classes where we were excellent at answering hypothetically questions that we made up. But once we started trying to map those ideas onto reality, it didn't really fit. And so neither one of these categories was really coming down hard on this is definitive truth. And so um, and you all know all of this because, uh, what I'm about to say next, because you've been through middle school, um, is that what is it that humanity is really longing for? And you step back and you look and you see that we're obviously craving relationship. And we're doing it in ways that people ultimately always let us down. And so as an undergraduate, I was kind of standing on the sidewalk at my university, scratching my head thinking, what is it that we're after? And I got thinking, it's almost like we were created for relationship with something that was perfect and would never let us down. Does that start to ring any bells? Yeah. People might say to me, Nathan, in this whole conversation of faith and science, it really sounds like you want to have your cake and eat it too. Uh, and that's not quite right. I want to have my cake and know the baker. And I don't think that's mutually exclusive. I can study the chemistry of the icing on the cake, and that's fine. But it means more if I know who made it. And those aren't mutually exclusive categories. It comes down to the character and the nature of who is this agent behind, what is the mind like that's behind the universe? Can it actually be known? Is it meaningful to think in that? Is there a bigger and a broader vision? And what is the character and nature of that? Can I trust it? And that's where our religious and spiritual pursuits really get interesting and good questions derive out of that because we start to see that actually we have a deeper delight and understanding of the scientific way that the world works when we can frame it into a bigger picture. And so that's why I think Christians can have so much fun in scientific careers because uh, in the math of it, we can enjoy that, but we can frame it in a much bigger picture too in ways that aren't mutually exclusive. So I've been chatting away here for about 20 minutes and you've been very patient and, and listening. So why don't we do this? Why don't we, uh, if you just want to turn to some people beside you, and take a second or two and kind of throw it out there and kind of feedback among yourselves. Hey, he said this was interesting. I'm not sure about this. I'd like clarification on this. You can formulate some questions together or individually. 
And so after you do that for two or three minutes, get to know who's around you and kind of give some responses to some of the things that I've said. I know I kind of threw a lot out there quickly to you. Um, do that for a few moments, and then Rusty will come around and have a microphone, and you can throw up your hand, and we'll, we'll take it from there. So take a few minutes, turn together, and uh, see what you come up with. Thanks for being uh, good listeners. And if you want to clarify anything on the end of anything, if you think I missed something. All right. Well, thank you. That gave me a, a chance to go and grab a drink of water. So that was strategic. Um, I think what we'll do now is we'll open it up for kind of thought suggestions, questions, comments, and things I should have said and things I shouldn't have said from your perspective. And what we'll do is we'll start within um, questions of clarification and things on this topic. And we'll, we'll spend a few moments doing that. And then I'm guessing that uh, it might snowball out into other types of conversation. So we'll let that happen, but we'll try to stick to this topic for our initial questions. All right. <laughs> Not quite as eloquent as he is, am I? I hope I'm that smart when I turn 31. I really <laughs> do. He's only 31. Don't let the beard fool you. Um, so if you've got a question, and if you're courageous enough just to ask it in person, I'll run you the mic. And, and for those of you who are maybe just too meek or you feel your question is too silly uh, to be associated with it, um, 
text your question to that number. For those of you who, that don't have my cell number, that's not my cell number. <laughs> okay? <laughs> sure. <laughs> but, but you can do it that way. I'll get it, and then I, uh, I can ask the question, too, using that. So uh, anyone want to start us off? The first question A brave is, first question asker? The first question is always the hardest, so let's start with the second one. <laughs> And if you're so bold as to give us your name, that could be fun, too. Okay, my name is Richard, and uh, uh, just, just briefly, uh, um, like I come from a, a background uh, of growing up in a Christian family and that, but as a kid, I had a lot of trouble with, the, uh, with uh, what the, um, the teaching was that I was getting from the church in terms of, uh, and, and the difference from the school as to what I was getting. And... Uh, uh, so, in a sense, uh, science kind of drove me away from uh, Christianity for a long time. Uh, I fought it for a long time until I had one of those mo crisis moments where uh, I suddenly realized that uh, I, I was looking for something, and I realized it was God, and I became a Christian. And that, but then I still had the questions. But uh, after um, I spent a lot of time uh, in the years afterwards trying to figure out how science and and Christianity uh, will come together. And uh, I, I feel I have a lot better understanding of it now. And I kind of look at, as some people have written, like uh, the Bible is, uh, is, is um, a book about how to get to God. And science is more of a reflection of, uh, of uh, an expansion of, uh, of understanding uh, the natural world and, uh, and that. And um, so I, I don't really uh, have a specific question, but like I, the, the, one of the main things that I had a problem with uh, you know, in the teaching from the church uh, that was there for so long was that uh, creation happened in a literal six-day uh, period, and uh, it just didn't seem to fit with everything that I saw in the world. And then, of course, there was a teaching that uh, the, universe, the world and the universe was basically only uh, 6,000 years old or 8,000 years old, something like that. So, um, so I'll just throw that out there if you have some <laughs> sure. comments on that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and, and you hit on two points there. I think one was going back to that original point of saying, what is the purpose of our source material? In the sense that, you know, um, the Bible has a book called Numbers, but is very little help in calculus. Um, so the, there, there's a whole lot of reality that isn't described there, but the purpose of Scripture is to put us into relationship with God uh, and it isn't claiming to be the total source of all knowledge. When I go to change oil in my car, you know, I don't flip to Leviticus. Um, and that's not because God doesn't know anything about the way the world works. It's just not, that's not what the point of that was. One of the things that's tricky for us um, as Christians, I think, and especially if you've grown up in a Christian uh, home, when it comes to your more specific question about how we understand Genesis, is to ask ourselves, why is it that we believe Genesis is true? We're talking about stuff that happened before people existed. How does that work out? Um, well, actually, you have to have, and it's difficult on the other end, too. We have stuff in the scripture about after people exist on earth, too, right? So both ends of the spectrum. and uh, You have to actually have a concept of divine revelation before you can delve into any of those categories. And I think what often happens as we, as people say, okay, I'm interested in Christianity, 
Pick up the Bible, turn to Genesis 1.1. Yep, that doesn't correspond to reality as I know it, so I'm done with that. Um, And we want to start at Genesis 1 because we feel like, oh, in order to have a comprehensive view of our faith, we need to start at Genesis 1. But actually, if we want to start at the beginning, we need to start with the person of Christ. If we have a Trinitarian theology to think about who is God. And I take Genesis seriously because Jesus took Genesis seriously. And I take divine revelation seriously because I take Jesus seriously. And it's because of what I know about the character and the nature of God and his ability to reveal reality to me that I can have confidence in the things that happen before and after people exist. And so the starting point for somebody who isn't a Christian is not necessarily what do you believe about Genesis 2. If you don't give a rip about who Jesus is, Genesis 2 is not your biggest problem in life. We have to start with Jesus and have a a concept of the possibility of God revealing himself to us in order for us to go back into those categories. Then where we go from there is we look and say, you know what, actually, historically, there's been a lot of variety in how we understand these opening chapters of the Bible. Augustine thought, for example, that God created the world instantaneously, all in one moment. That was in the late 300s, early 400s, um, and that he just wrote it out that way to make it more believable for us. If you look at in the United States, for example, in the early 1900s, there was a set of volumes called the Fundamentals. You've heard of fundamentalism. It comes from the set of teachings that come out of this volume of works called the Fundamentals. And in the Fundamentals, it outlines four different ways that you can faithfully interpret Genesis chapters 1 and 2, um, allowing for different times and and things. Um, One of those has become the predominant one in certain circles. But we have to remember, even in the early 1900s within Fundamentalism, there were at least four different views that Christians said, you can be a faithful Bible-believing Christian and, and actually faithfully read this these different ways. Then in more recent times, there are two guys that I know that both have triple PhDs in theology and uh, science fields, and one of them one time said, there are at least 11 different ways that I can read Genesis 1. And the other guy independently said, there are at least 14 different ways that I can read Genesis 1. We have a discrepancy in the number of discrepancies we have about this. But all of them agree categorically, that what Genesis 1 and 2 is teaching us is that God is the one who's doing the doing. We don't have a part in it. That he is the creator, he acted unilaterally, and it's out of his love and his desire for relationship with humanity that it was created. There are 47 chapters in the Old Testament that describe the details of the construction of the tabernacle. We're talking about what color walrus hides go on the east side under what color hooks. When the Bible wants to give us extreme detail on something, it is capable of doing that. And so it's a little bit rare that we only have two chapters at the beginning, our biggest chunk of the creation story, of saying, is the purpose of this to give us a scientific description? Now, I think there are things there that do highly parallel what we observe in the physical world, but there are faithful ways that Christians currently and historically have read that and seen that there is room for, not because of a desire just to fit in or to bend to culture, but to say the way that this is written does allow for variation in the way that we think about time within the way that this is constructed. And so I think your experience is extremely common, but just to throw it out there and say, actually it's been more common for us to hold a diversity of views and tension in that. Um, And there are all kinds of different ministries that you can look up to, and people write all kinds of books about this. Um, And we can talk individually afterward if there are specific resources that you're interested in and particular views. Um, I don't think you can get away from a a historic Adam and Eve without having massive theological problems. Um, And so there are things that we do have to hold on to that when we look to the New Testament and the way that Jesus and Paul wrote about these events and the significance of them spiritually and theologically, they're important. But on the other hand, we need to uh, um, realize that Christians have faithfully had some disagreement on that and that there might be room for some time in the way that that's 
worded and laid out there. So thank you for sharing. I'm sure a lot of other people in the room had that same question. Um, so appreciate that, Richard. Thanks. All right. Uh, my name is Dan, and just recently, uh, he's not working with us anymore, but I worked with a young lad that uh, had a very strong view that science was the answer to everything. And uh, science, in a sense, to this young man was God. Yeah. You know, it, it, to him, it answered all the philosophical questions of yeah. life and et cetera. And I guess one person that he held in really high esteem was Richard Dawkins. Yeah. And, uh, and I guess my question might be, uh, can science answer all the philosophical questions of life as Richard Dawkins would say that it can. And uh, maybe I'd ask you what you think of yeah. Richard Dawkins sure. as a scientist. Yeah. Um, the, the fascinating thing about the statement, um, science can describe all of reality, is that that's not a scientifically provable statement. It's a philosophical statement. It's not a scientific statement. And so in making the claim, you're making a philosophical statement that's out of bounds of the scientific fields of inquiry. Does that make sense? And so actually the statement itself violates the claim that the statement is making. Um, my wife and I, sometimes when we're arguing about something silly just for fun, she'll come up with an argument and make it rhyme. So, and it rhymes. And then she'll say, and you know that's true because it rhymes. And it gets me every time. What's wrong with that statement? You know that it's true because it rhymes. It doesn't rhyme. That statement doesn't rhyme. You know it's true because it rhymes. It doesn't rhyme. So it fails its own test of truth. And so by the time I get done explaining this and laughing about it, I can't even remember what we were trying to decide we are going to eat, you know, kind of thing. And so the, the claim itself doesn't fulfill the promises that it's making. Um, and so that, that's an interesting one. I think the whole Richard Dawkins thing is actually on, on its way out. If you look at the numbers in the States, it's usually... Um, young white guys in their early 20s that are the bulk of his following, and that's kind of um, gone to the wayside. And I think Dawkins' main influence and impact was in kind of the shock and awe um, category of it. He came to speak at the University of Connecticut in the States, and I went and met with the Christian um, students before he was there and after he was there. And so it's kind of like, hey, this is what's coming. So he came, and then I went back for the second time, and I drew a line down the middle of the whiteboard, and I said, all right, shout out what Dawkins is against. And I mean, the audience just... And I filled up the whole half of a whiteboard. And then I said, okay, I went over to the other side and said, okay, what is Richard Dawkins for? And I just let it sit in like pin drop silence for like 30 seconds because it was making the point. Somebody finally was like, naturalism? So I put that with a question mark in it. Um, so really what he's doing is he isn't contributing anything new to the conversation. He's functioning parasitically off of other people's works and ideas philosophically. That's not a statement about who he is as a biologist. We can appreciate his work for that, but we have to recognize that just because you're great at one thing doesn't mean you're good at another. A year or two ago, CNN had a, a list of the world's 50 most famous atheists, uh, and they were all actors, 
in singers and songwriters. And I thought, well, surely your dashing good looks and melodious voice make you the master of all reality, right? So just because you're a good actor or a good songwriter doesn't necessarily mean you're a good philosopher. And I think Dawkins um, messes with that balance a bit of taking his academic credentials as a biologist and applying that into a philosophical And um, I don't know if you've read The God Delusion, other things by Dawkins, uh, Harris, Hitchens, those guys. Um, for me, it's, it's kind of like buying a bag of potato chips. Do you do chips or crisps in Canada? Chips. Okay, yeah. Amen. Um, you know, you, you get the bag of potato chips and it's all shiny. You're like, ooh, look at this. And then you pop it open. You're like, ah. You know, those little contents may have settled sort of thing. That it, it looks bigger because it's full of hot air. It looks bigger and flashier than it actually is. Um, and when you really dig down into the depths of it, I think if you're, if you're a Christian and you're eating a, another healthy diet, you can take some of that in. And when you push into it, it's not quite as uh, scary as, uh, as they make it sound. So, sorry, some rabbit trails there, but. Yes, in the back, the brother with a beard. That's right. Bearded people are smart, right? Because it rhymes. Wait, no. Oh, um, <laughs> uh, I think one of the one of the things that I found. I haven't read a lot of Dawkins, but I think the new atheism largely lost steam because it was based on some outdated science, such as the uh, fi- like the ability for matter to be finite. Uh, so again, I'm going to maybe ask you to uh, fill in the blanks for me a little bit because I, I don't know much about as much about this as you would. Um, but but we uh, we've gone to the point where I believe scientifically have have we not settled the fact that that uh, matter is not infinite? Uh, is there a necessity of the beginning? And then my other question would be: um, I know that faith brings us into the realm of of plausibility of of, of something coming from nothing. So I guess there's a two-point question. One would be, um, is the scientific community kind of of one mind that, that uh, the universe is not infinite, that there was indeed a beginning? And secondly, is there any scientifically plausible explanation for something coming from nothing if a beginning was actually necessary? Yeah, great questions. Um, there is a book called The Universe from Nothing by Lawrence Krauss, who's a physicist at Arizona State University. Um, and so that caused huge ripples because you had people running around and say, here's a book that proves that you can get something from nothing. In the first part of the book, he defines that nothing as a gravitational field and then writes the book. And everybody was like, ah, because you just defined something, nothing as something and then went from there. Um, there, is, there is scientific con- consensus that the universe had a beginning. Um, and that's the foundation. And actually, that wasn't known to be true really until the 1950s. Um, when you have Big Bang cosmology, and there's a resistance to it because they said, if this is true, it's going to look like Christians were right about it. Um, and so, you know, in the 1950s, they're like, yeah, the universe had a beginning. And the Christians were like, come on in, brothers, the water's fine. Um, um, so the, the cosmological argument is actually bolstered by that, going, anything that begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist, therefore the universe has a cause. And there's great philosophical and scientific evidence to say that anything that begins to exist has a cause. There's great scientific and philosophical evidence that the universe began to exist. Um, and therefore, there's a pretty solid evidence that the universe has a cause behind it. So um, there's, there's that side of it. The way that that's, um, you'll hear a lot about the multiverse recently. People trying to get around it saying, well, maybe um, there's a multiverse generator or that it's one of infinitely n- numerous um, universes. And really, that's coming back around to bite the scientific community, too. In fact, I was just reading um, 
very secular scientists were saying this is just another way of scientists doing theology because scientifically we can't observe anything that happens outside of our universe and so it's all hypothetical that there could even be another one of these so it's an entirely metaphysical we have no scientific evidence for it but to get out of the fine-tuning and the beginning nature of it we need to hypothesize that there are multiple universes um, William Lane Craig has hypothesized and it's an interesting counter argument that the best hope for the multiverse is an infinitely creative God so if there are multiple universes where did they come from or who created the multiverse generator it doesn't really answer the question it just kicks it upstairs and asks the question um, and so it's a kind of a funny flip on that to say that actually if we believe in an infinitely creative God then the, that's the best philosophical grounding for the possible possibility of other multiple universes as far as the um, nature of matter within our universe as we have a rapidly expanding it's not just expanding but it's accelerating as an expandance um, talking about dark matter dark energy uh, when I was an undergrad James Webb who the telescope is named after came and spoke at my college and I went up to him afterwards I was like so what is what are we talking about with dark matter here and he like put his hand over his microphone and leaned down and he's like when you hear scientists using words like that that means we have absolutely no idea what we're talking about um, he said it, it exists we can measure it we can see that it's happening but we don't have a causative explanation of what's actually going on there um, I think you will find that if you look across um, academies in the world that physicists are the flag bearers of Christianity in the hard science categories and it's because they're on this edge of like ah we don't know it's an awesome and it's awesome kind of um, I had more physics professors that were Christians than I did philosophy and religion professors that were Christians um, and if you look at um, Cambridge Polkinghorne uh, Oxford University Ard Louis head of theoretical physics 14 of the people on his staff are actively involved in churches uh, Ian Hutchinson at MIT I've heard the I've heard him speak on the resurrection the head of the Harvard physics department I've heard him preach before um, you go down the, looking at kind of the, some of the top universities in the world and look who, look who's in the physics department and often you'll find Christians in those positions um, and I don't know exactly what the reason for that is but there is this kind of um, enthralled desire at what we can know but uh, an understanding that the the reins are out of our control based off of the fullness of what we can see out and about this is uh, probably more like a statement than a question again um, the evolution slash creation if there are that there are that many scientists that are believers why are the evolutionists still getting away with it just as they're hammering and hammering and hammering that evolution is fact period yeah so um, the couple things there one is evolution is the best explanation of the formation of reality if there is no God so it's the best you can come up with with a closed system so think about it this way um, imagine this is the world if we're saying all of the information that exists has to come from within it it's a closed system there's no inner there's no there aren't any ideas there's no mind coming in and out of it that's the best you can do um, as Christians we believe that it's an open system that we can interact with God that God can create and speak into and so it's an open system there's a divine mind outside of it that can speak into it so what you'll notice is is that excuse me the the evolutionary statement that um, about the development of species by an unguided process that statement by an unguided process is actually a philosophical statement tagged onto a scientific observation 
And so the statement by an unguided process isn't actually scientifically provable. Um, and so again, it goes right back to this idea of what are the sources of what we can say, and is it a scientism that we've decided everything has to come from within that? And so that's what I was saying earlier, that naturalism's biggest problem for me is the types of questions it doesn't allow me to ask. And so it's a blurring of categories of the, instead of having a, a who and a how, you have a how and a how, to get it, and there is no why. Um, and so it, it's, it's merely a blurring of philosophical categories of, of making a, a philosophical statement from a scientific platform. Is the, so yeah, whether or not it makes sense, that's still what people are going for. But if, you're, if, you're pre, uh, if you have a priori commitment to it being a closed system, that's the best you can do. So really, what we can do as Christians is not necessarily like headbutt, oh, you're, it's, um, it's what I call the taunt of what if your view is too low? Well, yeah, well, what if there is something outside of that? Um, and if you're arguing that all of reality exists within this building, and then somebody comes from outside of it into it, um, they can say, oh, no, you know, your, your view is too small. Uh, and so we're, as Christians, calling people to a bigger view, not a narrower view. And that's, and that's the dynamic often is that um, people think about Christianity like a funnel. You know, our minds are broad and open, and as we come into it, it gets narrow. And actually, it's the reverse of that. Becoming a Christian is like going through a funnel backwards. Um, it starts at a single point, but the further you go into it, the bigger it gets, and the broader and the more beautiful and the deeper it goes. And so that's the vision that we need to create as Christians as we think scientifically. Um, so, yeah, it doesn't necessarily make sense, but again, it goes back to my thing about talking about sugar and eating donuts at the same time. Uh, we, don't, we don't make all of our decisions rationally. Thank you. Nathan, uh, can we open it up, uh, the line of questioning beyond matters of faith and science now? Let's see what happens. And, yeah. and if there are other questions on that topic, feel free to ask. But we'll open it up uh, broader than that, because I know there are some questions that pertain to, to uh, other topics. Yeah, great. And if I don't know, I'm going to text that number to get the answer. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> other questions? Hello. My name is Heather, and um, a couple of weeks ago I was talking to my brother, and he's very skeptical. Mm -hmm. um, he grew up in the church, but he has walked away from it. Um, we were talking about how long people lived in Genesis, and he was trying to convince me that the Bible was wrong about it being years, and that it was months or moon cycles or whatever. Um, have you got anything to help me have <laughs> that conversation? Him? Yeah, so um, two things there. And one is, we said he's skeptical. Somebody once made the helpful distinction, I think. They said, there's a difference between a, a skeptic and a, and a doubter. Uh, a skeptic is somebody who asks questions hoping there isn't an answer. And a doubter is somebody who asks questions hoping that there is. Um, and so those are two very different ways to come to the conversation is, is it a real wrestling with a question, or is it kind of just throwing things out there to, to fend off the, the argument? Um, so part of it is that in our relationships, we have to figure out what's the heart behind the question. Is this really the hang-up issue, or is this just one to kind of get you going, um, so to speak, in that? So, so that's the first part of that. second part of that is, um, goes back to what I was saying earlier about, as Christians and our belief about what Genesis speaks to us about, that's not our primary issue. We deal with who Jesus is and who God is, and once we have an idea that actually God can reveal himself to us, then it doesn't 
it's not that difficult to believe that Adam lived, Methuselah lived 900 and some years. We, we trust God. We know him. He's, he's been true in the past in the things that he said to us that we can know in our lives enough to say, is that ridiculously long? Yeah, absolutely it is. But based off of what we know about God, it's not a ridiculous claim to believe that. But I only can, only can believe that with certainty if I believe in the character and the nature of God being truthful and honest in the way that he reveals himself to us. And so um, it's an interesting conversation, and I don't know anything about moon cycle theory for the ages of people in Genesis, but I do know about the fact that as we come into relationship with God, that's the starting point for whether or not we can believe that some of the previous revelation was, was solid. So if, whatever you can do to steer the question back into the person of who Christ is and, and wrestle with Jesus, um, that's a, a more sure foundation for moving that conversation in a positive direction, probably. Thanks, Heather. I've got a, a question texted in here. All right. And then Richard has one after that. Richard? Oh, yep. Uh, this is the question. What is your uh, case slash evidence for explaining why universalism is not considered today? What's, I guess, what, what's the case against uni universalism? The case against universalism? Universalism. And, which, um, and, and I think that's to mean that, um, that Jesus died for the sins of the world and he saves all whether they know they're saved or not, whether they put conscious yeah. faith in Jesus Christ or not. So, well, and there are two, there's two sides of universalism. There's, there's that theistic universalism and then there's kind of just the broader universalism. Um, the, the interesting question um, is to think about what, do, what are we talking about when we, mean, when we say the word salvation? What's going on there? Uh, and I like a definition that somebody once used. Actually, it's the uh, theologian um, Jack Davis, teaches at Gordon-Conwell, said that salvation, if you want a broad category for any religious or philosophical system, is when your true self is in proper, rea in proper relationship with ultimate reality. When your true self is in proper relationship with ultimate reality. So if you're um, a polytheist, it's becoming one with ultimate reality, your true self is a fragment of that. Uh, and you can go on and on for the different ways. Um, if you're a naturalist, your true self is that you're carbon-based life form and you eat good food and that's good. Um, you know, so you can figure out salvation in all those categories. But for Christianity, uniquely, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And in doing so, he makes the claim that truth is not neutral, but that truth has a purpose. And the purpose of truth is to put us in relationship with God. And so from a Christian perspective, what we mean by salvation is when the fullness of who we are, recognized as people made in the image of God, comes into a personal relationship with ultimate reality, which is actually a personal divine being. That is an entirely separate category than what everybody else is talking about when they talk about salvation. And so our salvation, in a sense, is a, a reformation of putting us into proper relationship. And a lot of American Christianity, I won't, can't speak for, or I should say U.S. Christianity, I can't speak for Canada, focuses on forgiveness as the goal of our Christian faith. And if you look at the teachings of Jesus, forgiveness is not the goal, it's relationship with the Father. Forgiveness is a prerequisite for that relationship, but it's not where it stops. You have to have it, but it goes beyond that. And so having a, a concept of salvation that says that we can all be saved but not know it, 
is sort of like having a statement that says we could all be married to each other and not know it. Um, because inherent in what we mean or talking about in salvation is, a, is an intimate relationship, spiritually speaking, that we're cognizant of. And so I think that would be the foundation of having that conversation is to say um, universalism on the surface level, if it's a, if it's a non-religious one, sounds nice, but you can't have mutually exclusive truths mean the same thing. And from a Christian perspective, we would say that Jesus, um, if we're going to use Scripture as evidence of where we get our ideas of what it is that Jesus is and what he's about, then the statements that Jesus himself make in Scripture make it very difficult to come to a conclusion that all people will be saved um, in the sense that I think is usually meant by universalism. So we're taking... If we want to have a universalism based off of the life of Christ, we have to take the life of Christ at the exclusion of the words of Christ. And so my argument against that would be that we can't separate Jesus' method and his message in a way that would um, put those two in tension. So I'm, I feel like I'm probably not answering that question quite exactly right because I don't quite understand the fullness of what's being asked behind it. So if you ask that question and want to come up and talk to me um, privately afterward, maybe we can make a, a better stab at it that's more helpful. Thank you. Okay, I've got uh, both a comment and uh, and a question. Yeah, put my glasses on for a second. <clears throat> um, when you were talking about Richard Dawkins before, I, I remember this uh, one comment that uh, that I read by Robert Griffin Griffins Griffiths. I mean. Um, He's in mathematical physics, and he said, if we need an atheist for a debate, we go to the philosophy department. The physics department isn't of much use, (laughs) which seems to be pretty true. Um, But the question I had was, uh, like I've read a lot on uh, genetics uh, as well, and uh, I'm really kind of fascinated with uh, what's happening lately with it. And of course, it's used in law enforcement and uh, and all sorts of uh, different fields now. And uh, it seems to be very mathematical, too, as well, you know, uh, in what they do. But uh, there's a whole line of research now in, in terms of uh, tracing populations uh, uh, and people from around the world and where they came from and, uh, and uh, how they made the journey, what countries they visited along the way and who they interacted with. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that, uh, as a Christian, that uh, I have a real uh, difficulty with is, uh, like, Genetic, genetic seems to be a very accurate and, and uh, uh, a very precise type of uh, uh, scientific field. Yeah. And, uh, but what's happening lately is that they're tying uh, um, ne- uh, the Neanderthals into uh, our genetic uh, uh, background, uh, yeah. that there's some interaction with them uh, uh, in the past, as recently as 10,000 years ago, maybe 50,000 years ago, and that... Uh, the way they they examine it, uh, uh, that uh, markers show up uh, from uh, uh, in our in our genetic streams, indicating that there's a certain percentage of Neanderthal genetics within us. And I'm just wondering, like it's it's really a very strong field now, and uh, what your comments would be on this? Yeah, um, and and that's one that um, I have questions into, and I always ask somebody who knows more about genetic sequencing than I do. Um, it is interesting that in the whole uh, genetic project, you have Francis Collins, who's the head of the Human Genome Project, he's outspoken Christian also. Um, if you want to write down a name, Fuzz Rana and Hugh Ross are two guys that are really good. 
Okay, yeah, I think Fuzz has some very interesting things, specifically on the Neanderthal link, um, and he would cast some doubt on whether or not those markers are direct derivatives of that, that connection and what happened there. So um, reasons to believe.org, I believe, is their website. Is that right? Um, and so Fuzz would kind of be a go-to guy for me that I would send him an email and say, hey, can you help me with this? And he has a lot of YouTube videos on that. Um, if you just type in uh, Fuzz, F-U-Z, Rana, R-A-N-A, and Neanderthals, um, there's, there's stuff that comes up there that is a little bit out of my realm, scientifically speaking, but I can point to that resource as a good spot to, to dig around. And, uh, and, and they're both fairly available. If you had questions about something, they asked to, to look them up on their website and, and push into that. So sorry, I can't give you a slam dunk um, answer on that. But there are, there are Christians that are thinking diligently about that. My research um, in my undergrad was on uh, how is it that when you put like uh, hot chocolate or your, your hot drink, you have coffee, and you add something to it, and then you stir it horizontally, it mixes it vertically. So what are the particles doing when they're accelerated this direction that mixes something this way? Um, and so based off of my study of that, I'm here to tell you about Jesus. Um, so anyway, the, the genetics is a little bit outside of my fluid dynamics uh, background. And now you're all wondering, why is that like that? It has, well, yeah, we can talk about it. It has to do with as the particles are accelerated to the outside, you have an increase of pressure and a lower velocity that creates a pressure differential, and so they come actually up the side to create vortices um, on the walls, and you actually have a couple different layers. Yeah. We all knew that, Nathan. Yeah. We, don't, we don't need an explanation. They, they we all knew that. that. They teach that in schools here to everybody. The little curve in the hole is a 1 over r squared relationship. Hi, I'm Susan, and I just have a question. I don't even know if it's relevant, but um, often we'll hear that um, uh, that the Bible is true because of the stats, the statistics um, that there is no way this could have happened statistically because it would be one in whatever. Um, could you speak to that? Yeah, so, um, so if I understand the question of the argument that you're hearing is that it's a, a proof of the validity of Scripture based off of the improbability of these things actually happening just randomly. So people might say, how is it that you get a unified theory over 2,000 years and 40 different authors? Or you could say, how is it that you have the precision of this, uh, these prophecies this far in advance of that? Um, yeah, and I think there's a certain merit to it. There's nothing there, though, that um, if you don't want to believe it, you don't have to accept it uh, because it's, it, um, it, it's definitely a strong pointer in that direction. I think one that's actually, uh, and this is, is new evidence that um, I've, I find to be very interesting, um, is, is stuff like they've gone back through and surveyed all the grave sites of like first century Palestine and written down all the names and said, okay, what are the most popular names in these different age brackets and, and demographics and looked at that and said, oh, you know what, so... Um, Peter is, is like number six. Jesus is very high. Um, and, and looked at the, and said, do the Gospels have the names of people correct? And if they do, do they have them in the right ratio and proportion? Um, and so they would say, you know what? Actually, Peter is extremely common. And every time you see Peter in the scripture, it says, um, 
Peter called Cephas, or Simon Peter, or Peter who or Simon lived by the sea. You know, there's a, a disambiguifier attached to it. When you see the word Thaddeus, they're not like, oh, it's Thaddeus who owned the camel. Like, there's only one Thaddeus. You know, it's, it's not. And so actually, you see those proper relationships and ratios in that. What makes that weird is if you go back to, I was looking this up just for the fun of it, in the town that I live, um, in 1950, the most popular name in my town was Mabel. I don't know any Mabels. But if I wanted to write historical fiction that was accurate to that time, I would have to go back and get census data to get the proportions of the names right, and I'd better have a woman named Mabel in that. So it's, these are pointers to the argument that it would be very difficult to 200 years later write about a different country and get the ratios of the names right. Also, you have things like in Mark, it says that they sat down on the green grass. Well, based off of when that was in relationship to Passover, we can look at the Roman rainfall records and say, would the grass have been green? Does Zacchaeus climb the right type of tree? Do the disciples get the traveling distances between towns accurate? Um, these are the types of things that get far more interesting, I think, that add to kind of the mathematical improbability of them being random and from a distance. And so these are actually types of arguments that are more modern and more recent um, on the statistical analysis of the text itself correlated with our historical records that I think um, carry a lot of weight too. So yeah, it's a whole field, it's growing. Uh, Peter Williams at Tyndale House has a really helpful series on comparing the four Gospels that we have, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, with some of the false Gospels and the differences in the amounts of names and places and distances and, and that sort of thing. Um, so for example, like uh, in the Gospels, there's like one place name per thousand words or something. And Matthew is writing about Cana and Nazareth and these little tiny towns that nobody's really ever heard of. Um, you know, they, they were tiny towns at the time. All the uh, apocryphal gospels talk about Jerusalem. Well, I could write a story about first century Palestine and guess Jerusalem as a city, but I couldn't have gotten the distance between Cana and Nazareth correct and stuff like that. So anyway, there it's a yeah, it's it's a thing. People are doing it. Um, and it's, it's fun to look into. Um, so these are, these are all things that I think you can't say, this is a slam dunk proof. Uh, because remember what I said? Only mathematical proofs are provable. But these are strong pointers that we can't skip over lightly if we're truly um, pursuing the truth. Good question. I don't know if I was speaking in the right category there or not. I know there are more questions. Be brave. I'm going to start asking questions here soon. Yeah. yeah, what do you think are some good questions we should ask you? <laughs> what was Abel doing by himself in heaven for 700 years? Yeah. If the earth was spinning during the... When Jesus ascended into heaven, what time of day was it? Because that would determine which direction heaven is. How do you map spiritual realities onto Cartesian coordinate systems? Why are spiritual beings non-redeemable? Fun things like that. My, my wife always says, what are you thinking about? And then I tell her, and she's like, the other night, she's like, what are you thinking about? I was like, I'm trying to, we were going to bed, and I was like, I'm trying to figure out if God has moral obligations. And she said, sorry, I asked, I'm going to sleep. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, so um, some of those studies have been, uh, I think, probed as scientifically as you possibly can, and there are some of them that do seem to have some merit um, to them. And so I don't think it's all com a complete farce. However, there are some of them that I think run to extensions in logical and theological conclusions that go beyond what we would say we can biblically know. And some of those are maybe the more popularized narratives um, that uh, I would think might not be quite as helpful. So there, there are some of, those, some of those realities of people's experiences right at the cusp of, of death is a very common thing. Um, so it's, a, it's an interesting field of psychology in addition to physiology that's, that's worth looking into that definitely would point to the idea that people do tend to have intense spiritual experiences at the, at the end of life. Um, which, as Christians, it, most of the world has to think about life in terms of death. And as Christians, I think in death in terms of life. Um, as some would put it, really Christians believe in life after life after death. Um, it's death isn't the end. And so there are things that, it, it's almost like Scripture describes reality <laughs> in, in the sense that there, we do have these pointers of, of um, all kinds of people. So I would say that if, if, you, if, you're going, if you want to look into it, look at some of the studies that have been done rigorously and, re, and reported in that ways. Um, I haven't been really impressed with a lot of the books and movies and TV shows and stuff that have kind of uh, made a theatrical spectacle of what heaven might be like. Uh, and that's, I, I don't have any scripture base that off on. It's, that's Nathan speaking. That's not a definitive. That's just an opinion. So um, take it for what it, for what it is. Um, my name's Ken, by the way. I forgot it the last time. You said Ken? Ken. Ken. Um, can you explain carbon dating? Because there's carbon dating, like they like we're saying, according to scripturally, the world's maybe 68,000 years, whatever. But carbon dating, they've got it bound and determined that it's, this happened 50,000 years ago, 100,000 years ago, or whatever. Can you lighten that up a bit? Yep. So basically what you're looking at is the rate of decay of um, an atom. And most of the, all of the scientific community is extremely fixed on the fact that this is an extremely reliable way of looking at the age of something. Um, there's, there's no real um, debate about that. It's kind of like cutting down a tree and looking at the rings. It's a pretty fixed thing. Um, if you want to make a, an argument that, that, isn't that doesn't necessarily correspond to years as we think of them, then you need to get into a system of saying that at different times in ages past there have been different ratios of different elements in the atmosphere to do that. Um, and so that, that's the... the, 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 the this, um, the discrepancy isn't in whether or not carbon dating is accurate. It's in whether or not we have a consistent amount of um, certain elements in the atmosphere that may have manipulated those numbers and made those be off a little bit. So that's kind of where the, um, those arguments factor more around that type of a conversation. Um, so the kind of, that's, that's where we're at. And it's important to re re realize that there are, there are paradoxes. There are things that don't seemingly necessarily from a biblical and scientific perspective makes sense right on the surface value. For example, one of those would have been that the universe had a beginning. Christians believed that for a long time before the scientific community believed that. And so these things were held in, in tension, and then later, oh, it turns out um, this was right. And so, again, that goes back to the limits of what we can know and where we're at. We should be comfortable saying, 
ah, we need to do some more exploring and figuring out around this because this doesn't necessarily mean to match up. But just because they don't right now doesn't mean that there isn't a better um, description or a fuller explanation of that coming to us further down the road. Um, thanks, Kent. I had a question uh, texted in here. Uh, kind of came back to Heather's question about um, how the Bible records that prior to Noah, these individuals lived exceedingly long lives. Yeah. Um, and you said, well, if we can, ex if we, um, if we can come to believe in Jesus and accept uh, the idea of divine revelation, then mm -hmm. we can kind of trust the Word of God. Yeah. Um, now, beyond that, our argument: um, are, are there any? Th so the question really was: Are there scientific reasons or theories? that could account for that reality? Yeah. Um, there, it, it, uh, I'm not an expert on this field at all, so I'm kind of um, playing off stuff I read a long, long time ago. But the, the way that you would have to construct that theory is to look at the... Um, so on the end of our chromosomes, we have things called telomeres, and basically aging happens when those telomeres wear down and don't communicate the data to the new cells properly. And so... What you can say is that it's theoretically possible that in previous genetic history, when you didn't have as much diversity or problems, so to speak, um, that, that that sequencing of, of wear and tear basically on our chromosomes didn't happen at the same rate. And so it was possible for people to live longer. Um, so whether or not there's genetic evidence of that, of course, there's stuff linked to diet, to climate, all kinds of stuff. Um, you do have some fossil records of some abnormally large humans. Um, that are mystifying to us. So there, there are enough blips and oddities to our uh, kind of our anthropology records that I don't think we would want to say in a slam dunk way, this is the maximum possible limit that humanity could live to because we're working scientifically now in the other direction, right? We're trying to extend life back in, in, into a, a later direction. Um, when my daughter was born, her great-grandfather bought a life insurance policy for her. Um, and I looked at it in the, in the terms of the condition her estimated lifespan was 121 years. Um, and that's just because whoever's writing the policy is assuming that in the next 50 years we're going to have the technological advances to extend life out to that um, future. So there's a scientific belief in the community that the human body from our genetic makeup does have the potential to live longer than it currently is living. And so maybe that would be a point or two that it's not outside of the realm of possibility. Um, that So I don't know. I don't, I don't think there's a... One, one thing we have to, this is very important, is that um, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. And so just because we don't have evidence of something, that's not evidence that it didn't happen. Uh, for a, a, An example would be, hey, if a million Israelites walked through the Sinai Peninsula, shouldn't we have records of that happening? Um, and a friend of mine and I talked to um, very, very secular person about this, and they said, actually, no, not really, because a nomadic people group wouldn't leave the types of things behind in that climate. They would be too valuable for them, and we wouldn't actually have a record of that many people passing through here. So you can't go and say, um, in this specific area, Israel camped out necessarily. But just because we don't, we, there's an absence of the evidence of them being there doesn't necessarily mean that that's evidence of their absence. Does that make sense? And so just because we maybe don't have the evidence of, we have an absence of evidence of long previous human life doesn't necessarily mean that that's evidence against the absence of people that live that long. So 
Um, I'm not making the definitive case that that's the claim, but that's an important distinction to make on our minds when we're making arguments based off of what we could or couldn't possibly know. Good question. Somebody writes a book on it, let me know, I'll read it. And we have a volunteer. Oh no, he's just going to. All right, I think we have 30 seconds. Is that the? All right, you get to you get the end of the show. Yeah, my name is Christoph. Um, you believe that Christianity, and I, I do too, uh, beautifully covers all the data points mm -hmm. of questions that we get answer uh, or ask, I should say. Um, and Ravi Zacharias also says that it's the only um, philosophy or religion that covers the four basic questions of life: um, origin, destiny, meaning, and morality. Yeah. And yet, when I look around my um, at work and in my neighborhood, why do so many people um, find it so difficult to make that leap? Yeah. One of the, <laughs> C.S. Lewis has a line where he says, a little bit of hypocrisy can do a fellow good. Um, and what he means by that is that very few people live entirely consistent within their own worldview or the way that they see the world. And so, um, there are lots of, so you talk about the four basic questions, origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. And there are lots of worldviews that have answers to some of those questions. Um, what is unique about Christianity is its ability to answer those questions in ways that don't contradict its answers in other categories. So for example, if you want um, origin from a naturalistic perspective, you can have an origin statement, but then your description of morality is very difficult to derive from that description of origin. You see what I'm saying? There's a, there's a tension there, but how do you get from that origin to that type of morality? Um, so it has answers for those, but they don't match and fit, to e fit together. And basically what we often see um, is what Francis Schaeffer called people stealing cookies from the Christian cookie jar in the sense that people are happy to borrow concepts of morality, maybe, for example, from Christianity without holding to Christianity itself. And so there's a fluidity in the way that very few of us actually live rational lives where our concepts of those four things hold together well. And so it's important for me intellectually that that is true for Christianity, but what captivates people about Christianity, well, some people are like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. I'm a Christian. Yeah, um, sign me up. But for other, most people are captivated by something else, and then, so there's an intellectual structure that undergirds it that's, that's necessary and is very much there, but it's not... Um, something that people have to live by. And any time that you have a system that has creatures with some sort of freedom in it, we have the ability to live inconsistently with our presuppositions and our actual actions. And so I think that's the, the frustrating, I think that's, make a little plug here, that apologetics can be helpful in that, in the sense that our role as a Christian can, ask, can be to push back and ask questions in it. We have to remember, Christians are not the only ones that have to answer these questions. Everybody does. And so, uh, I think a, a well-placed question is really helpful for people as they push into and think through, why is it that you believe this? A, a book, For example, a book like Straw Dogs by John Gray, he's an atheist philosopher who basically takes other atheists to task because he's saying, hey, look, we're not living consistently with what we say we believe. We're borrowing our morality from Christianity. What we're doing doesn't naturally derive from what we say we believe. And so um, if we as Christians can not as like, ha, I got you, theological kickboxing, armbar, I win, yay Jesus, um, you know, that's, that's not the tone that Christ had, but we can ask good questions of, Jesus did it all the time, why do you call me good? What about this? What about this? And so I think asking good questions is the best way to get around that. Not to force people, not to embarrass people, but just to challenge them to think through, there's a logical inconsistency in what you say you believe and what you're actually doing, 
um, and to push back into that uh, is, is the most helpful way forward. But it's also important for us to remember, too, is that as Christians, we can assimilate and borrow ideas from culture around us, too. We're not immune to this. And so that's why it takes um, our, our foundational sense of truth coming from the revealed Word of God, the sense of community that we have where we can help shape and form each other and keep each other accountable and bounce ideas off of each other and have nights like this where we can wrestle with ideas is a core part of the way that God made us to be not just in relationship with him but also in relationship with each other. And so that's the challenge and the call and the beautiful thing that God invites us into, a world where he created us with creative minds, with a desire to discovery, and the, the, uh, the delight of pushing into that truth. And so I hope this time has been helpful for you. I hope it's been an encouragement to show that as we push into truth, we should always pursue it, and that it leads us into a relationship with God when run to its logical conclusion. So thank you guys for your time, for your good questions, and we'll, I'll stick around, and if there are people that have uh, other things they want to chat about, feel free to come up. And